All right, before we get started with this podcast, we need to talk about something. Friends, it, it feels like the whole world can literally change for the worse overnight. You're following the news stories. With what's likely coming for our country, there is one thing you should do, and that's prepare. When you're more self-reliant, you're closer to freedom from any national crisis or job loss or economic downturn. But where do you start, and who can you trust? Let me make this clear. Building an emergency food supply to feed yourself and your family is a wise first step. And our friends at My Patriot Supply will help you prepare. Get four weeks emergency food supply for only $99, shipped free. That's 140 adult servings of easy to prepare food order today 888-457-3453 888-457-3453 or go online at preparewithcr.com that's preparewithcr.com build your emergency food supply for only $99 limit two units per caller 888-457-3453 or online at preparewithcr.com that's 888-457-3453 or at preparewithcr.com. All right, now let's get to the podcast. We've got some big news to tell you about from our partners at Conservative Review. Coming this December, it's CRTV, a brand new commercial-free digital network featuring Mark Levin, Michelle Malkin, and Mark Stein. You get all of this content anywhere you go, your laptop, tablet, cell phone, or even on Roku or Apple TV. And you can have all of this programming for a year for only $89 if you sign up before December 1st at CRTV.com. But to get that special price, you've got to use my name at the checkout, Dace. That's D-E-A-C-E. So go to CRTV.com and sign up today. Levin, Malkin, Stein, all for $89 a year. If you go to CRTV.com today and use the promo code DACE. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker, that is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. Well, greetings and welcome to the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Steve is out this evening. I'm his producer, Aaron McIntyre. Along for the ride with me is Todd Erzin. This evening we have a lot to talk about, uh, that's for sure. But first, uh, thanks to Vince Coakley for uh, filling in for us uh, last night. Uh, A couple of us who would otherwise fill in for Steve were under the weather. Big thanks to Vince uh, Coakley. Did a great job. Uh, coming up in about 15 minutes, we'll be talking uh, to Jason Jones, good friend of the show, about even though, and this is debatable, I know, but uh, summer's calling uh, last Tuesday a big win for the pro-life movement. Even though that's the case, he makes the case that there is actually some merit to uh, actually treating this like a loss. So we'll talk to him about what he means by that. Up in hour number two, we'll talk with a former cop, Uh, from St. Louis, Missouri, actually, about the war on police. Uh, That would be Jeffrey Vorta. He's written a fascinating new book about what really happened in Ferguson, Missouri, and he takes a look at this uh, trend nationwide as well. And then into Hour 3, we'll be talking a lot about uh, adoption with Paul Batura. 
He's uh, written a book. He, he's worked for Focus on the Family for uh, almost two decades now, and he's written a book about uh, adoption and how it's impacted him personally and how it's really literally impacted the entire world. Of course, even though Steve is out, you can contact him in a variety of ways. You can send him an email, steve at stevedace.com. You can find him on Twitter at Steve Dace Show, or you can find him on uh, Facebook as well by searching for Steve Dace. As always, that last name is spelled D-E-A-C-E. He'd like to uh, interact with me and uh, Todd during the show. You can do that. Uh, Todd's Twitter handle is uh, at Dace Online, and mine is at Dace Producer. You can also shoot me an email, Aaron at SteveDace.com. So the big news this weekend, Todd, is that um, Trump did indeed name his chief of staff and uh, also, he named his position that I've never heard of, senior counselor to the president. Have you ever heard of a position like that before? Well, they all have some version some of that, version and they of can that, I guess name it whatever they want to. Yeah, that's true. Uh, chief of staff, of course, is uh, going to be RNC Chairman Reince Priebus. Because death to the establishment! Except for Reince, for some reason. And then the other position... The very poster child of the establishment. Y- exactly. Uh, the other position, senior counselor to the president... It's going to be filled by Steve Bannon. Now, a lot of people I know are wondering what this means. Who really has more control here? Because they were announced at the same time. People are debating. Does one have more control? Does one have more sway? Um, I've seen some people say that Reince is really going to be calling the shots. And Bannon is just going to... Was given this gig to appease Trump's base. I've also heard that Bannon is going to be the one calling the shots. And Priebus is going to be some sort of figurehead carrying out whatever comes into Bannon and Trump's collective noggins. I'm here to say, uh, who the heck knows? Who who knows? Um, Now, the obvious reason Priebus is drawing the ire of of a ton of people is because he's the entity, like you just said, Todd, the mascot of what you think when you think of the establishment. I mean, he's the freaking chairman of the RNC, all right? And there's nothing about Priebus that screams grassroots or drain the swamp or anything resembling not corporatism or cronyism. But I have a theory here um, that I want to posit and I want to get your take on, Todd. Um, I, I, and it should be noted as well that there, there are some thoroughly decent people who are pleased that Priebus is being placed in this sort of approach. Um, then there's Steve Bannon. Now, he, the head of the alt-right uh, platform Breitbart News. People are really skeptical of him on the right as well. Um, well, not um, not saying he's a racist necessarily or an anti-Semite or a fill-in-the-blank xenophobe like some, well, everybody on the right or, or the left, I should say, made him out to be over the weekend. Uh, now, Ben Shapiro, who used to work for Bannon at Breitbart News, wrote these words recently. He said, When I left Breitbart back in March... I accused Bannon of turning Breitbart News into Trump Pravda, as I wrote. Indeed, Breitbart News, under the chairmanship of Steve Bannon, has put a stake in the heart of Andrew's legacy, Andrew Breitbart. In my opinion, Steve Bannon is a a bully, and has sold out Andrew's mission in order to back another bully, Donald Trump. He has shaped the company into Trump's personal Pravda to the extent that he abandoned and undercut undercut its own reporter. This was back during the Michelle Fields case, where Michelle Fields is a reporter for Breitbart, was grabbed um, by uh, Trump, I think, campaign manager at the time, Corey Lewandowski. Shapiro goes on to say that decision paid off for Bannon, surrounding himself or trying to ride the coattails of famous people. In August, he became Trump's CEO, and at that point, 
Uh, Shapiro also wrote a piece describing who Bannon was. Now, Shapiro goes on to say, is Bannon anti-Semitic or racist? Shapiro says, I have no evidence that Bannon's a racist or that he is an anti-Semite. The Huffington Post's blaring headline, white nationalist in the White House is overstated at the very least. With that said, as I wrote at the Washington Post in August, Bannon has openly embraced the racist and anti-Semitic alt-right. He called his Breitbart uh, the platform of the alt-right. So that's why people are concerned about Breitbart, in case, or uh, of Bannon, uh, being in this senior position with uh, Donald Trump. But as I said, I have a theory, Todd, and I need you to shoot this down. I just, I need you to do this. I, could this, and this is coming out of, this is a clean slate, I'm, I'm with Steve and trying to wipe the slate clean and just giving this guy a chance, and my heart is just overflowing in abundance of charitableness, which is a word I just made up. Could this be a stroke of brilliance on the part of Trump, either accidentally or on purpose? Steve said a while ago that this, after this election, and at that time everybody was thinking Clinton was going to win, the media would either try to paint the right as either this fringe alt-right nationalist movement or the establishment types. He said that, right? Well, the vast chasm of sane people, supposedly in the middle, would be forgotten. So my theory is quite simple. Could having both Bannon, a symbol of the alt-right fringe, and Priebus, a symbol of the establishment, whispering in Trump's ear at the same time, have some sort of a balancing effect on Trump's issue or uh, Trump's attitude towards policy issues? Could that be a good thing, Todd? Your reaction? No. Okay, I didn't think so. And that's not why those two men are there at all. Priebus is there because I think Trump understands how much he had to do with delivering this thing railroading a convention those types That's of things exactly what i was gonna say whatever you think about reince his ability to sell out and sell out deeply mm-hmm. in the right moment is unparalleled he went to work for them and that thing and, it, and we we think that it got a little messy there it could it could have been a lot messier had it not for reince and company uh, railroading of that thing and i think uh donald is gonna want to do a little uh, railroading every now and then in the next four years so he got his guy ben on the other hand this is interesting because i've watched cable news i've watched msnbc and cnn for the first time in quite some time and they are obsessed with this bannon thing now if you want to get away from trump cult and now start being a big boy, you don't do this. But we know now that Trump won because of the hatred of the media. Mm-hmm. So if you feel that you need to keep that ginned up, if that's the magic amulet you wear around your shoulder, then you do. You, he may never talk to Trump. He may never listen to a, a word Bannon says. But he just drives the left crazy. And you keep, you keep that out there. You keep, hammer, uh, you, you keep allowing the left to just obsess about it. And the dynamic that pushed Trump over the... Now, it, it, this isn't... You have to do more than that. But that's 
to constantly keep that buzz going, that part yeah, might be crazy like a fox. Uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's his, um, that's his armor right now. Um, I mean, he's bulletproof. Uh, people, I mean, the left's been hating on him as has been extremely well documented. Um, I mean, despite all the coverage they gave him in the primaries and early on in the general election. And he comes back and he wins now. Um, people already don't trust the media, as has been pointed out before on this show before. But here's, here's the overall thing with Trump. And there have been so many rumors since last Tuesday about his cabinet appoint appointments. Uh, it's um, whatever happens. Uh, the, the time that voters, the f time that we here on the ground had to make a, a statement to sway, for the most part, that's over. We still can, of course, um, by making phone calls and, and what have you. Uh, but whatever Trump does uh, to appoint uh, and whatever appointments he makes to his cabinet, it really, I don't think, is going to end up making that big of a difference because Trump's going to Trump all the time. I have Jason Jones on next. You're listening to Steve Dace. Most of what we say is illegal in Europe. Get the truth while you still can. Steve Dace. Welcome back to the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. On the line right now, Jason Jones. He's a film producer, activist, author, and a friend of the show. Uh, we haven't had him on for a while, I don't think. Uh, but he's uh, joining us now uh, to talk really all things uh, where we are as a culture. And uh, he and John Zmirak have a new piece over at the stream that I want to get his uh, take on and uh, get his opinion on. And uh, Jay, or, uh, Jason, it's uh, great to have you on the Steve Day Show. I, I don't think I've ever talked to you personally, but my name's Aaron McIntyre. And again, thanks for uh, hopping on with us. Hey, Aaron, it's great to be on the show. I am a big fan of the show, so it's a privilege. Well, thank you. Um, before we really get going, um, like I said, you, you wrote this piece uh, with uh, Zamir Ak over at the stream. I, I want your 10,000 foot view on um, on what happened this election um, and where the United States is at as as a culture right now because uh, you're a guy you're an activist I mean you engage with the culture especially as a filmmaker and a film producer I, I want your take on both those things yeah well no I mean that's a good question I have to say I was I've been pretty much wrong about everything this election cycle I I didn't imagine that Donald Trump had a chance in the primary I was national co-chair for Ted Cruz, and um, full disclosure, and I really didn't think he had a chance to win um, in the general election. And of course, I was, I was very, I was, I was on the one hand very relieved uh, because some of the issues that I care most about are the issues that I think our Donald Trump is most sincere about. Um, but on the other hand, um, I was worried, and full disclosure, a little selfishness for the brand of the conservative movement because I am looking at the big picture, and um, I do that, you know, as an as a amateur historian, as someone who's grateful for the privilege to live in the United States, to live in the Anglo-American community, I see how, where we're situated, in. and, um, you know, I live in Hawaii when we're coming up on the 75th anniversary of, of Pearl Harbor. I have friends 
um, that remember Pearl Harbor. My Knights of Columbus counselor is not really Filipino man who tells me stories of fighting the Japanese uh, in the Philippines. And so we have to think this way. And so the, the, the article that John Merrick and I wrote wanted to remind conservatives, look it, we didn't win anything yet. Um, Donald Trump won an election, but we as conservatives, we have not won anything. Nothing is different today than it was the day before the election. And we reflected the day, you know, the day after the election that our article came out was the 90th anniversary of Antonio Gramsci being in prison and looking, and that looked like the end of the Marxist left in fascist Italy. But he created a plan to march to the institutions that was carried on later by Saul Alinsky and then later by Hillary Clinton and then Barack Obama. And so what we argue is, look, we need to march to the institutions. We need to take back our churches, our schools, our, you know, our, our universities, the media, movie studios, and... Um, and this is where victory is. In 1964, it looked like a major defeat for the conservative movement when Barry Goldwater lost. But in fact, that led to the birth of the modern American conservative movement, which led ultimately to the defeat of totalitarian socialism in the West. Um, but then, while we were fighting that battle, the left was using the Gramsci strategy, and they robbed our right out from underneath us, including our mainline Protestant churches, the corruption of Catholic social teaching, the co-opting of our, our universities, and, and Hollywood. If, if Hollywood were the Senate, you know, we'd have two seats. If the universities were the Senate, we'd have, we'd have one seat. So we as conservatives have, have a lot of work to do uh, to, to reclaim our culture. Yeah, you, you talked about uh, Antonio Gramsci, and he's been a subject of discussion on this show. Um, maybe you can fill our audience and just uh, give us a reminder, again, who, who he is and why he's significant. Yeah, you know, in my mind, you know, he's a very sympathetic figure. He was a Marxist, you know, in Italy, and he, he, is, he was witnessing his friends uh, and his cohort being brutally crushed um, by the fascists. And um, so from where he was sitting in his place in time, he really saw Marxism as an instrument of liberation for the people that were being brutalized by fascists all around him. Now, we know he was mistaken there, um, but he has to be admired for his thoughtfulness and his understanding that, that we need to work through the institution. Right. And then, he he is uh, he, on on the one hand um, there are things about him or things about uh, how he approached issues um, that sh maybe can be emulated but on the other hand what he believed was was very bad of course we know uh, and very detrimental. Yeah, it was poison. It was yeah. poison. And 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 then, but I look at a man like Gramsci and say that here's a man who didn't have the answers, um, but he was disciplined, hardworking, thoughtful. He had fortitude. You know, some of the great villains that we struggle against, you look at Margaret Sanger. I mean, Margaret Sanger marched through the institutions with dedication. She's the founder of, of Planned Parenthood, and, of course, a very wicked woman, and Planned Parenthood's a very wicked organization. But at the time she founded Planned Parenthood, the Protestant churches uh, were completely united against not only abortion, but contraception. No fault of divorce was unimaginable. I mean, modesty... You know, it was a modest society, but she sat, She sought to systematically um, take over the church, take over institutions and media. And 
we can do the same thing. You know, working in the film business, I tell people, the left didn't steal Hollywood. They bought it. They earned it. They invested in it. And um, so often I'll see conservatives invest in a film and they have one failure and then they say, I'm never doing a movie again. And conversely, I see the left, and not just the left. I mean, we have the Chinese. We have um, the Islamists uh, investing, uh, you know, buying up Hollywood right now. Right. And we need to counter this with, with the truth, with, you know, a culture of life, uh, love and beauty. And the good news is, you know, I know, we, I know we're going to win. Uh, we ha- this is our, our great struggle against the culture of death. And every generation of Americans ha- has risen up and defeated the great ideological struggle of their age. And, and on our watch, not on our watch, are we going to are we going to lose it? Jason Jones is uh, on the line with us here on the Steve Day Show. He's a film producer, uh, activist, author, and uh, a good friend of the show. And uh, he and John Zmierich wrote a piece over at the stream, stream.org, called Let's Make uh, This uh, Pro-Life Win Stick by Pretending That We Lost. And um, you, uh, Jason, you in the piece that you wrote with uh, John Zmierich, you issue a few ideas of how we can begin that uh, long march through the institutions, just the very first steps in doing so. And, and when we come back, I want to ask you about some of the ideas that you write about over in this piece. And we'll do that with Jason Jones when we come back on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Steve is out uh, this evening. I'm his producer, Aaron McIntyre, uh, filling in with uh, Todd Erzin along for the ride as well. This is always a fascinating discussion. Because uh, there are things that we can learn uh, from our friends or opponents on the left about how they do things, so long as they don't compromise our own principles. And uh, that's uh, some of the uh, gist of the discussion that we have tonight with uh, Jason Jones. We'll be back more, more in a moment on The Steve Day Show. Don't go anywhere. Listening to Steve Dace. You can agree with him or you can be wrong. It's a free country. Steve Dace. Back on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Jason Jones on the line. He's a film producer, conservative activist, author, and a friend of the show. And uh, we're talking about uh, how conservatives uh, should view and and go forward here after the election of Donald Trump. And uh, using some of the examples set forth by uh, Antonio Gramsci, the foremost, uh, one of the foremost Marxists of our time in an article that Jason and John Zmirak wrote over at the stream, stream.org. And Jason, uh, before we went to break, uh, Todd is uh, here with us, of course. And Todd, you had a question for Jason. Yeah. How are you doing, Jason? One of my favorite uh, books along the lines of what you're talking about is The uh, Tragedy of American Compassion by Marvin Olansky. And he lays out over time, for and for a lot of pragmatic reasons, uh, charity was kind of put on autopilot w- with the help of government. And as, in order to get the institutions back like you're talking about, we really need to reclaim our sense of 
Christian stewardship, do we not? I mean, we're not allowed to simply put charity on autopilot. Charity is supposed to be very personal. The Trinity is personal. We're supposed to roll up our sleeves to help our fellow man. We're not supposed to simply be uh, writing out a check or keeping those people that are we deem different or downtrodden at arm's length from us. To get those institutions back, don't we fundamentally need to re-understand what Christian stewardship really is? That, that's exactly right, and that's our first point, is that if Hillary Clinton won, imagine, what would we have to do? What would we be talking about today? Well, we would say we need to reclaim the social safety net that has been hijacked by the state that's promoting a destructive secular humanism. We need to protect the vulnerable, and, and not only from poverty, but from ideology. And the way you do that is by creating a, an organic social safety net with, through the free institutions of civil society, the family working with the church, and other organizations that, that, that spring up in, in different communities. But that takes real sacrifice, and people listening are going to say, well, isn't that really hard to do with this, with this you know, the tax burden? Yeah, it's, it's very challenging. I'm not denying that, but, um, you know, I say that liberals and conservatives, we don't disagree on on, on all that much. We're told that we disagree on a lot. We disagree on how to achieve our shared goals. We all want every child uh, to go to a good school, to have great health care, and to have our opportunity as they grow. Uh, We disagree on how to get there, and and I think we understand as conservatives that, that we really need to protect children and families and vulnerable families from the, the, from the state, from being trapped into a culture of dependency. And um, but that's sacrificial. I think it's a scandal that in all of our churches that not every child has access to Christian education. I think every church community can figure out how to provide for every child in that community to make sure that, you know, from first grade until 12th grade, they have an opportunity for a good Christian education. And another great place to start practically for everyone listening is the most vulnerable uh, members of our community are preborn children and their mothers trapped in this crisis pregnancy. And so our crisis pregnancy centers is something that everyone listening should be involved with. You should go down and find your local crisis pregnancy center to protect these women from Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry. And those are just two really practical places to start, Christian education and protecting women and their preborn children from the violence of abortion. Jason Jones, uh, you had a, a few more suggestions in the piece you wrote over at the stream, stream.org, and of course another one, you already mentioned this, uh, recapture the institutions. And um, it's, I mean, it just seems like such an, uh, just a daunting, almost impossible task but you being in um, you know a, a filmmaker and being in that industry that seems so overrun with leftists and, and progressives uh, whatever you want to call them uh, what's your um, what's your insight on how we can actually maybe just specifically that industry how, what's your well, insight well the film business is the easiest you right. know really it's just a will to be willing to uh, work hard and sacrifice and invest it is the wild wild west now in hollywood because Production costs have gone down. Distribution costs have gone down. There are so many avenues of distribution, and content is king. Uh, there used to be a time when, you know, the major studios could, could crush you, but that's not, not the case today. And we're going to see these, these studios collapse in our lifetime, and, and that's going to be a great thing. Um, but, you know, 
together with my business partners, we've won some of the biggest film festivals in the world, including Toronto, Tribeca. We won the NAACP Image Award. Um, so there are a lot of opportunities for success. You just have to do it. You just have to invest. Making a movie is as, as easy and as hard as opening up a restaurant. It's, uh, it's a business, and it's, it's challenging, but it's, it's very, very, very important. I think another important institution, of course, are our universities, and that's where the real challenge is. But I looked at like the University of Notre Dame, and there's something very creative happening there. There's the Center for Ethics and Culture. And when some of the major donors were upset with Notre Dame, instead of abandoning the institution, they pooled their, their money and, and, and really funded this Center for Ethics and Culture, which is really a heart of conservative Catholicism now at Notre Dame. And it's vibrant, and it's becoming very influential. So it takes creativity, sacrifice, energy, and hard work, but we can do it. Talking with Jason Jones. Jason, can you hang on for one more segment? I sure can. All right, thanks. Talking with Jason Jones, a film producer, activist, author, here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. We'll have more in a little bit. Listening to Steve Dace. Ever exceeding your low expectations, the Steve Day Show. This is the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. I'm Aaron McIntyre, along with the Tonders, and filling in for uh, Steve Dace, who is out tonight. We'll be back in again tomorrow. On the line uh, for one more segment is Jason Jones. He's an activist, a conservative activist, uh, a film producer, and an author. And, uh, Jason, we've been uh, discussing with him a column he and John Zmirak wrote over at the stream, let's make this a pro-life win uh, stick by pretending that we lost. And um, Todd, you had one more uh, question for Jason. Yeah, Jason, if if you were to rank the top ten institutions that you wanted to take back uh, in in order of importance, you might not start with trying to take back number one for for again I, I used the term last time for pragmatic reasons. You, you the number four or whatever that is might be the one you want to start with just because the opportunity is right there. And if you manage to win on that one, you might start a domino effect. Is there one particular issue that is you think is r- more ripe than others within the next four years under President Donald Trump and a Republican? Congress. Yeah, I would say there's one issue and there's one institution that I would start with, and what's great is um, it's pragmatic and it's right there. It's just it's the most important and it's the easiest. And, you know, the WikiLeaks uh, gives us a little glimpse into the institution, and um, the issue, I think, is why the institution is so important. And that institution is the Church. You know, if you looked at George Soros' obsession with um, compromising the Catholic Church, and then, and then you had uh, Panetta. Um, you had the uh, the obsession with creating false faux Christian organizations that um, can be used to undermine Christians' ability to speak out their true social teaching. And why is that? Well, I think the big issue is abortion. Abortion is the fundamental denial of the founding principle of our country that we are endowed 
by God with inalienable rights. And it is really the center issue that's holding together the ideological left. So the first thing we need to do is, is take back our churches, not allow our Christian social teaching to be corrupted, um, and we need to force, uh, encourage, support Donald Trump in defunding Planned Parenthood, because if he defunds the abortion industry with our money, takes away our money, the abortion industry will die. The abortion lobby will die. When the abortion lobby dies, they will, they will not be able to just put fear into ambitious politicians. Bill Clinton was National Right to Life's Governor of the Year in the 1980s. Um, the most eloquent pro-life speech ever given was given by Jesse Jackson at the National Right at the March for Life, I believe, in 1976. Uh, Jesse Jackson abandoned his pro-life position in 1988 when he wanted to run for president. George, I mean, um, Bill Clinton abandoned his pro-life position when he wanted to run for president. So when we defang the abortion lobby, we will put an end to the, the abortion industry and we will see legal protection fall into place for the child in the womb. And that then changes so much, doesn't it? And the tactic of choice among the left is now not to deny the pro-life cause, but to submerge the abortion issue in a sea of prudential issues, everything from what is a living wage to carbon. So, and everyone listening here, most of us listening are Christians, we're part of Christian communities. This is Salem, right, by the way, which is, talk about an important institution. Salem Radio has been so important um, to our republic, and I will say Christian film couldn't have happened without Salem Radio being there to support it. But uh, everyone listening, you know, we need to be really engaged in our communities. And what is it to be a Christian? What is it to be like Christ? I mean, Christ demonstrated. The second person of the Trinity became man, became in solidarity with us and our sickness and our suffering. And as Christians, we are to live in solidarity with the most vulnerable. So the two issues are right before us, the child in the womb and the vulnerable religious minorities around the world, most of them being Christians, North Africa and the Middle East. And so these are the issues that are right before us, and there's a sense of urgency, and, and we need to do it. And then, of course, the other is, I, like I just said, is we need to preserve and save the Christians in Iraq and Syria from genocide. Uh, you know, if Assad falls, he's not a savory character, but if he falls and there's a real push, there was a, a you know, lust with Hillary Clinton to topple Assad, it would have exposed 800,000 Christians to ethnic cleansing. Because where Assad was pushed back, ISIS quickly liquidated um, the Christians in that region. So those are the issues. Be in solidarity with the vulnerable members of society, the most vulnerable members, the child in the womb. And the best way to do that, regardless of what Planned Parenthood tells us, is through the church. Through our churches. Our churches have a duty to stand up for the vulnerable. We did it with civil rights. We did it with abolition. And now we need to do it again for the child in the womb. Jason Jones has uh, been our guest uh, here on the Steve Day Show uh, this hour. He's a film producer, a writer, um, author, and a conservative activist. And uh, Jason, it's uh, been a pleasure to uh, have you back on the on this show. And uh, hope you uh, hope you uh, keep up the great work. Thanks again for for joining us. Thanks for having me. Can I make one more point? Do we have time? Sure. Uh, we've got about thirty seconds here. Okay. A real test for us, Steve Bannon. 
Steve Bannon is a tough guy. He's a, he's a rough guy, but he's also magnanimous. This man is very pro-life, and he is very committed to protecting uh, the Christians of Syria. And um, there's, there's, there's a reason why the left has, has identified him. If they can topple him, they can stop our agenda. Understood. Jason, uh, thanks so much again. Appreciate it. God bless you guys. Thank you. You're listening uh, to the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Of course, as I've uh, mentioned a couple times, Steve is out uh, this evening. I'm his producer, Ann McIntyre, uh, filling in, along with uh, Steve's web editor, uh, Todd Erzin. Uh, we'll be back uh, with a little bit uh, more thoughts on uh, what we heard from uh, Jason here this uh, last uh, half hour, talking about uh, what uh, conservative, what the road forward is for the uh, conservative movement in the United States and for conservatives and Christians in general. We'll be back to a wrap hour number one after this. Mark in broadcast mediocrity, Steve Dace. Todd, I don't know if you're like me, um, but anymore, my cell phone is just like another, like a body part. I mean, it's just an extension of my arm. I have it with me everywhere I go. I don't think I could go back to using a dumb phone, but even if I had to get rid of my smartphone, I I think I would probably I would probably die. But chances are your current phone carrier is using your money to undermine your beliefs. Think about this. Every every phone call you make, every text message you send is in a small way, maybe, probably actually, helping to go causes that run against your conservative values. Well, Patriot Mobile was created to give conservatives like you a chance to put your money where your values are and support a company that they and you know can trust to invest your valuable resources into the time-honored traditional American American values that made this country exceptional. Patriot Mobile offers nationwide talk, text, and high-speed 4G LTE data at competitive prices and donates up to 5% of your monthly bill to a conservative organization of your cho- choice. You get the same quality service, the latest and greatest smartphones at competitive prices, and it all goes to causes, or part of it goes to causes, that you believe in. You can go to PatriotMobile.com or call 1-800-A-PATRIOT, and when you decide to switch, use the promo code STEVE to get the $35 activation fee waived on up to two phones. PatriotMobile.com or 1-800-A-PATRIOT, promo code STEVE to waive the activation fee on up to two phones. So, Todd, if I were a Republican sitting in Congress right now, uh, say a senator or something like that, and we had just been through a very populist election, a very uh, an election with a lot of nationalist, it seems like, overtones, 
um, and people are very angry at you at the very idea that you are in power, what would be the first thing or one of the first things that you try to pass in Congress? Nope. Oh. You would try to pass a concrete tax, right? Ugh. Because that's exactly what Republicans did. Monday night, uh, and this is a story from Chris Pandolfo over at Conservative Review. Monday night, the Republican-controlled House uh, voted in favor of a tax on concrete to uh, placate special interests in Washington, D.C., provided yet another opportunity to expand the size and scope of government. The House of Representatives overwhelmingly passed H.R. 985, the Concrete Masonry Products Research, Education, and Promotion Act of 2015. It's a tax in all but name. The bill introduced by Representative Brett Guthrie from Kentucky would uh, create a concrete masonry uh, products board composed of 15 to 25 members appointed by the Department of Commerce after a referendum approval by producers of concrete masonry products. This is why taking back our institutions, like we just got done talking about with Jason, is going to be so hard. <laughs> Agreed. Concrete panels. <laughs> That's stone cold. Uh, hour ah. two is next. Listening to Steve Dace. Your SRN program begins in 60 seconds. SRN program begins in 30 seconds. Your SRN program begins in 10 seconds. Your SRN program will begin in 5, 4, This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. Hour two of the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network, is underway. Steve is out. He'll be back in tomorrow night. I'm his producer, Aaron McIntyre. Along for the ride with me, Todd Erzin. Somehow managing to uh, meander our way through another three hours of broadcasting mediocrity without our boss. If you would like to contact our boss, Steve, you can do so in uh, one of three ways. You can email him, steve at stevedace.com. Find him on Twitter at Steve Dace Show or on Facebook by searching for Steve Dace. 
And uh, as always, if you want to uh, interact with uh, Todd or I during the show, you can uh, find us on Twitter as well. At uh, Dace Producer is my handle, and uh, Todd's handle is at Dace Online. It's time for the Nightly Buzz. And now for something completely different. We need to have a talk about an excursus on natural theology. I prefer metaphysics to theology. You see, there's no guilt in baseball. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Can we talk about something else? Certain aspects of his culture may seem absurd, perhaps even offensive. We have cut the it is that time when, even when Todd and I, it's just Todd and I are filling in, we still need to get to some stories that we wouldn't otherwise have time to cover. And being that we were off last night, or out last night, we have a lot of catching up uh, to do, so let's get started. Uh, story one, uh, Brad Avakian has served as commissioner of the Oregon Bureau of Labor and Industries since 2008. In that role, he achieved national notoriety for investigating Sweet Cakes by Melissa, a bakery that refused to furnish a wedding cake for two lesbians on the grounds that doing so would violate the honor's Christian beliefs. In 2015, Avakian levied a $135,000 fine on the store's owners, Aaron and Melissa Klein, declaring that their refusal to produce the case or cake wasn't protected by the First Amendment and instead was simply illegal discrimination. In October, the bakery was shut down entirely. While the client's business was going downhill, Avakian turned his sights to higher office. In last week's general election, he ran for Oregon Secretary of State, but in an upset, Dennis Richardson, a former state representative and gubernatorial candidate, trounced Avakian. Richardson will become the first Republican to win an Oregon statewide office in 14 years and the first Republican Secretary of State since 1985. This is, um, again, I, I really, this is something that I've been meaning to say ever since last Tuesday. No justice was had last Tuesday. None at all. Justice for the left and for the evildoers that are on the left would look something like being uh, tossed in prison. For, for the hardships, and especially, and I'm thinking the, 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 the pro-abortion, the people who have enabled abortion uh, for so long, that, that's what justice would look like. And, and really, none of us deserve justice, and that's another rabbit trail. A negative judgment was had last Tuesday upon a lot of people like Brad Avakian, and that's the same thing here. This this is not justice for, for what he did, because what he did was, um, uh, of course, unjust. I mean, he wasn't, I, I don't even think um, the uh, Bureau of Labor and Industries being that commissioner, that's an appointed uh, position, uh, but a negative judgment uh, or an unfavorable judgment was had upon him. What's your take on this, Todd? Well, my take is Whatever's going on in Oregon, I, I hope that he lost because people said, this is ridiculous. Now, right. what you've got to do is continue to assert yourself in that regard. Uh, we've talked about the um, Iowa Supreme Court, its gay marriage ruling uh, in the past on this show and how uh, Iowa voters threw three of those judges out. But just a year or two after that, Another judge came up every bit as liberal, if not more so, than those three judges. And we didn't throw that judge out as, oh, well, we made our point. Made our point, yeah. Yeah. Uh, No. 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 
if you, if you think these folks in our look at how these people are behaving in light I mean, look everybody on the show is frustrated with Trump to one degree uh, but we're not you know going to our safe places sucking our thumb standing in the middle of interstate traffic like happened near the University of Iowa in order to protest uh, Donald Trump these people aren't going to stop they can't stop to quote the Beastie Boys they can't stop won't stop they won't stop yeah. This to them is the hill they want to die on. This is a righteous cause. You must meet that with the requisite energy. So to the folks in Oregon, well done for throwing this guy out. There's a legion of other fools just like him. Take care of business with them too. They are legion. They are legion. Uh, Next story, several University of Virginia professors collaborated uh, collaborated to write a letter to university president Teresa Sullivan against the inclusion of a Thomas Jefferson quote in her post-election email November 9th. But here's this thing. Jefferson founded the University of Virginia. In the email, Sullivan encouraged students to unite in the wake of uh, contentious results, arguing that uh, university students have the responsibility of creating the future they want for themselves. She said, quote, Thomas Jefferson wrote to a friend that University of Virginia students are not of ordinary significance only. They are exactly the persons who are who are to succeed to the government of our country and to rule its future enmities, friendships and fortunes. I encourage today's UVA students to embrace that responsibility, end quote. Some professors from the psychology department and other academic departments did not agree with the use of this quote. Their letter to Sullivan argued that in light of Jefferson's uh, owning of slaves and uh, other racist beliefs, he should uh, or she should refrain from quoting Jefferson in email communications. Now, Todd, I'm, I'm confused on a couple of fronts here. One, isn't Thomas Jefferson like the left's favorite founding father? And two, um, isn't Thomas Jefferson like complimenting University of Virginia students in that quote? Can you help me out here? Yes and yes, but we are finding out right now just how deep the rabbit hole goes. Like I said, they are unhinged. They cannot help themselves. And this is more proof what I've long said. Never, ever let a progressive tell you that they care about the Constitution. All right. This is an extension of that. The absurdity of this should be so self-evident, but they're telling you who they are. They don't care about the founders. They, you know, they can't. They don't allow themselves to have favorite founding fathers anymore. They're just all white cis guys who created all the uh, nightmares that uh, these uh, delicate snowflakes have right now. These folks should be mocked. They should be run out of town, just like this guy in Oregon. But just. If they don't care about Thomas Jefferson, they're telling you when they say, quoting the Constitution, they're only doing it because it helps them at that given moment. Mm-hmm. Other than that, this is just a piece of paper that they'd be content to crumple up and throw in the trash. And that's why progressivism really is so attractive to so many people, because there's no rules. Whatever helps you one minute may not the next, so you just forget about it. There's no standard. There's no baseline. Speaking of Oregon, more than half of the anti-Trump protesters arrested in Portland didn't vote in Oregon, according to state election records. At least 69 demonstrators either didn't turn in a ballot or weren't registered to vote in the state. KGW uh, station compiled in uh, Oregon compiled a list of 112 people arrested by Portland uh, Police Bureau during recent uh, protests. 
Those names and ages provided by police were compared to state voter logs by Multnomah County elections officials. Records show 34 of the protesters arrested didn't return a ballot for the November 8th election. 35 of the demonstrators taken into custody weren't registered to vote in Oregon at all. These are just the kind of useful idiots that progressivism relies on, yep. though. They, they, these are all the people that they're claiming to try to help. But that's the thing about big government. It needs to keep these people right where they are so it justifies the large S to keep saying we're going to solve your problems. Uh, my head's about to explode with some of these stories, uh, including this one. Avengers director Josh Whedon, uh. who spent millions of dollars in the weeks leading up to the election on celebrity packed in advertisements encouraging people to vote for Hillary Clinton, tweeted this week, quote, Trump cannot be allowed a term in office. It's not about 2018. It's about right now. And I understand. Um, I understand. Right now, he's millions of dollars lighter in the pocket because he supported a candidate who couldn't even beat Donald Trump. Todd, your thoughts? How can a guy who has made such fantastic layered movies... I mean, the modern-day superhero movies, it's not just a bunch of guys in spandex flying off into space and you know shooting lasers under their eyes. I mean, they are very much stories about the here and now. They're talking about government power, government overreach. How does a creative guy like this just have zero clue? Again, we on this show have lots of problems with Donald Trump. You lost try to have a little dignity like one of the superheroes you've written about before because right now you look like a fool well said is there a war on police we'll talk with a former police officer next you're listening to steve dace We don't play for a team, we fight for the truth. You're listening to Steve Dace. Welcome back to the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. It is no secrets that in uh, the past few years especially, being a police officer in the United States is um, becoming, it seems, uh, one of the more dangerous and deadly jobs in the uh, that, you, that you can have, that one can have. And I don't know if there's ever been a time that that's not been the case, but it has uh, definitely uh, been so, especially in the last couple of, of years. The name of the book, The War on Police, written by Jeffrey Rorda. He's a retired police officer and a four-term Missouri state representative. He currently works as the business manager for the St. Louis Police Officers Association. And as I said, he is the author of The War on Police, released just a few days ago. Jeffrey, uh, welcome to the Steve Dace Show, sir. How are you? Great, Aaron. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, Before we get into the book and some of the um, uh, more de- de- details of the book you discuss Ferguson um, there is also one of uh, in included in the book is one of three interviews that officer Darren Wilson did uh, before we get into that uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background yeah 17 year veteran law enforcement I uh, rose the rank of, of police chief in a 
suburban St. Louis Police Department and then uh, successfully ran for state representative and, and left law enforcement after I won my election and uh, served for eight years in the legislature. We, we have an eight-year term limit here in Missouri. And uh, as I was leaving, uh, the St. Louis Police Officer Association said they needed somebody to manage their day-to-day affairs. Uh, the job, uh, you know, I took the job. It was a great job. It was never easy. But uh, once Ferguson happened, uh, it became, uh, you know, a, a really um, sort of surreal, uh, unthinkable uh chapter in my life and chapter in the history of, of law enforcement here in St. Louis and all over the country. You do uh, talk about uh, Ferguson in, in your book uh, quite a little bit, but mm-hmm. um, b- before we get into that specifically, what, what was really, what after reading your book, what is one thing that you would want every person reading your book to come away with? In other words, what was the goal in writing this book? Yeah, it, it was kind of Bifurcated. You know, I had the book has two parts. The first half of the book um, sets out to put history back on its axis. Uh, you know, to to uh, debunk this hands up, don't shoot myth. Uh, to disrupt this uh, narrative that arose from Ferguson and, and Baltimore and Staten Island and, and so many other places. This anti-police narrative. This this anti-police hate speech. Uh, and, and just, you know, particularly, I talk about stuff that was going on in other places, but obviously, you know, I was in the, you know, on the streets, in the command post um, in Ferguson and, you know, intimately aware of what was going on there. I'd done over 100 interviews on Fox, CNN, and other major networks talking not only about um, Ferguson, but about other high-profile police encounters. And, um, you know, I wanted to give the readers an understanding of, of what the reality was, you know, not what they've seen in, in some pretty sensationalized uh, media coverage, uh, but what really happened. So the first half of the book is a sort of a Guadalcanal diary of, of, of what happened in Ferguson. And as you said, it includes an interview with Darren Wilson, who I've you know become friends with uh, throughout the course of, of this uh, adventure. And, um, you know, as, as you also said, uh, the only other interviews he's done has, has been with uh, ABC News and George Stephanopoulos, and, and, and then the one he did with New York, which was a complete ambush hit piece. Uh, but, you know, that's the first half of the book. And then the second half of the book talks about you know, how we got to where we were in, in Ferguson and America and where we should go from here, where, you know, what, what we can do to avoid these um, high stakes encounters between cops and young black males who uh, frequently arm themselves or turn deadly violence towards police officers because of you know the the hopelessness and despair that they live in and I'm not this is not some you know liberal white guilt um, you know Pollyanna right. view of things it's it's a hard look at at the the reality of the police officers um, face every day in a country where, uh, you know, we're part of uh, policing and urban um, the, the jurisdiction is, um, you know, gun violence and drug addiction and broken homes and failing schools and all the other things that 
would make a kid like Michael Brown think um, that it that, that it somehow is rational to try to disarm Darren Wilson and and do whatever he planned to do with Darren's gun. Um, I mean, that's just not a rational decision. And um, if we stop concentrating all of our attention on the police side of these encounters and, and stop with all these faux reforms on the police side of the encounter and are honest with ourselves about where the violence and um, the bad outcomes are coming from, which is the other side of the encounter, and try to address that, then we can move ahead. Then we can avoid these um, deadly confrontations. But as long as we engage in this this um, charade um, that we can stop these things by fixing law enforcement, then uh, things are only going to get bloodier. Jeff, uh, I've just got a, like a couple of minutes before our first break, but I, I want you to lay out once and for all for our audience the truth of what happened in Ferguson. Because as you have noted, there has been highly sensationalized coverage. There have been lies. Once and for all, can you lay out for us what really happened there? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll say it in as dark a term as I can. Michael Brown was a was a, a, a thug and a street criminal and um, and was in the company of of this this kid who who confabulated the story and uh, this Dorian Johnson kid who I'm very hard on in the in the book and you know the, 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 Will, or Brown tried to take Wilson's gun uh, reached in the car uh, began to pummel Darren try to take his gun. Uh, there were two shots fired in the car uh, as they struggled over the gun. One uh, one hit Brown in the hand, at which time he retreated. Uh, Darren exited the vehicle, uh, ordered him to surrender. Uh, Brown squared off and um, decided that uh, he was going to try to take his gun away again, charged at him, and at that point, Darren had no choice but to um, use deadly force, and we all know how that story ends. Talking with Jeffrey Rorda, he's a retired police officer, four-term Missouri State Representative, author of The War on Police, um, and it's really taking a look inside of what happened with uh, the situation in Ferguson, Missouri, and uh, you heard him mention Officer uh, Darren um, Wilson, who's the officer at the uh, center of um, what happened in Ferguson. And there is an interview that uh, Jeff did with uh, Wilson, Officer Wilson, that's included in this book. And I want to ask you about that uh, when we come back, Jeff. Listening to the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Don't go anywhere. Listening to Steve Dace. For such a time as this, Steve Dace. Back with Jeffrey Rorda on the Steve Day Show. Jeffrey is a retired police officer, a four-term Missouri state representative, and uh, currently works as the business manager for the uh, St. Louis Police Officers Association. He's author of the book, The War on Police, and we've been discussing, and this uh, book centers around what happened in Ferguson, Missouri. 
And it also includes a, a very rare one of three interviews with Officer Darren Wilson, who was the officer um, that was at the center of everything that happened in Ferguson uh, regarding uh, Michael Brown and the uh, uh, backlash and outrage um, that the uh, media was able to contrive uh, coming out of that. And um, Jeff, I, I want to ask you about that interview, and I, I don't want you to give away the store um, with uh, with this book, but but I just one point or one question I want to ask you about that interview you did with Officer Wilson. Is there one thing that he wants everyone to know about what happened that night? Yeah, I think if you boil it down to that, uh, he wants people to know that uh, he doesn't uh, have any, uh, didn't have any choice. And um, uh, while while the outcome's regrettable, uh, it wasn't him that drove the outcome. And, you know, that kind of, uh, and, you know, the purpose of the interview is not so much blood and bullets as it is heart and soul, and, and for people to understand who Darren Wilson is as a man, and, and try to humanize him a little bit in the in the wake of uh, the way he was mistreated by the media. Um, but I mean, it, that sort of leads into one of the the sort of the central thesis of the book, and that is that um, if 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 we continue to concentrate on the law enforcement side of these deadly encounters and continue to deceive ourselves into thinking that, that we can stop these encounters by fixing law enforcement and through all these faux law enforcement reforms, then they're just going to continue. They're just going to get worse. So we've got to be honest about what really happened in this situation and so many others and acknowledge that it's, it's the young black male on the other side of the confrontation uh, who's doing violent, um, uh, ill-advised things uh, that lead to a bad outcome. And that's where we ought to be focusing um, our attention, and that's where we ought to be striving for change because, um, you know, trying to, to um, limit law enforcement's uh, use of militarized equipment, what a laugh, uh, is not going to uh, reduce these confrontations. Um, fixing the the kid in the ghetto whose life is so hopeless that he thinks it's rational to try to take a gun away from a police officer and kill him. So let's let's talk about that. What what does that kind of change? What does that kind of fix actually look like, Jeff? Well, I mean, here's why here's why you won't hear any politicians talk about it. It's because first of all, they've created this situation with. Um, a welfare state that doesn't work, um, a, a broken schools and, and dysfunctional government institutions. Um, and these are big, hard problems to address. And um, when we identify the real problem, um, elected officials can't uh, avoid um, taking some responsibility for how we got here and how we, how we get out of this. Um, you know, so I mean, I, you know, again, I it, it, we have, uh, you know, um, we have economic disparity, uh, racial disparity in this country, and it's a long-lasting problem. And until we do something about that and address joblessness and um, violence, crime, and, and drug addiction, and broken homes, um, and um, you know, failing school districts in the inner city. Uh, we're all gonna we're all gonna be in danger because um, this is going to continue to fuel 
crime in this country. Uh, it's going to continue to put law enforcement, uh, in particular, in harm's way. And we, we've got some heavy lifting to do here, and uh, we're not going to get there unless we're you know, honest about what happened in this and so many of these other confrontations and uh, quit pretending like it's the cops' fault uh, and acknowledge who really you know, engaged in bad behavior. Well said, Jeffrey Rorda, author of the book The War on Police. Jeffrey, how can people find the book? Uh, it's on Amazon and Kindle. Uh, it's on, on bookshelves and, and a lot of uh, major retailers. And then you can find it at thewaronpolice.com. Jeffrey Ward, uh, thank you so much for your time, sir, and uh, keep up the great work. Thanks, Aaron. We'll be back uh, with an update in the case of uh, Baronel Stutzman with uh, Alliance Defending Freedom. That's next here on The Steve Day Show. Listening to Steve Dace. For truth, justice, and the way America should be, the Steve Day Show. Welcome back to the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. On the line right now, Carrie Kupek. She is with Alliance Defending Freedom, giving us an update on the latest in the case of Baronel uh, Stutzman from uh, the state of Washington. And uh, Carrie, it's good to have you on the Steve Day Show. How are you, ma'am? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Uh, just to reset for our audience, I, I know most of our audience is probably... Uh, very well familiar, familiar with uh, Baronel's case, but can you reset what's going on here? Sure. Baronel Stutzman is a 72-year-old grandmother who is a florist in Washington State. She owns a shop called Arlene's Flowers that she took over from her mother, and she has been in the floral design business for many years. She had a customer, a longtime customer and friend named Rob, who she served faithfully for 10 years and created all kinds of interesting custom arrangements for him. And Rob uh, was gay, and uh, Baronel knew he was gay, and, and Rob knew Baronel was a Christian, and that, and that was just fine. But one day Rob came in and asked Baronel to uh, do a custom arrangement and floral design for his same-sex wedding. And Baronel went home and thought about it and talked about it with her husband and prayed. And she came back and she told Rob that because of her faith as a Christian, she just could not do that custom design work because she would consider that a violation of her faith. She referred him to three other florists in the area. Uh, they talked a little bit about his wedding, and they parted ways. Uh, they hugged, and that was it. Well, the next thing Baronel knew, she was being sued by both Rob and his partner and also the Washington State Attorney General, and not just sued professionally, so her business wasn't just being sued, but also in her personal capacity, meaning that her home, her life savings, and her retirement were up for grabs as well. And there's an update in this case that's uh, been developing over the last uh, few days. Fill our audience in on what's happening now. Sure. So Baronel's case was argued today before the Washington State Supreme Court, and it was an interesting argument. Uh, there was a lot of discussion about what it means to create expression, to speak.
speak, to exercise one's religion, because at the heart of the case is this. Creative professionals should not be forced by the government to create um, specific work for a religious ceremony that violates their religious beliefs. And it really violates the fundamental bedrock American principle that all Americans should be free to live and operate peacefully, consistent with their conscience, consistent with their beliefs, without threat of government punishment. There was a lot of discussion today from the justices about what expression is, what freedom of speech is, how far does it go, and um, it, it'll certainly be interesting to see what kind of decision, decision they issue. What is at stake here, Carrie? A lot of a lot is at stake, and not just for Baronel, but for all Americans. Think about this. Uh, Baronel served faithfully this friend and customer for 10 years. Uh, she declined one event that violates her faith as a Christian, referring this gentleman to other area floors. And in fact, this particular man received offers of uh, 20 offers of free custom floral design for his wedding. And because of declining this one particular event, Baronel stands to lose everything she owns. This kind of government coercion, oppression, should, uh, and oppression should really concern everyone, regardless of where they stand on the issue of marriage, because the implications are never-ending. Uh, you know, should an atheist singer be forced to, say, perform at an Easter worship service? We would, we would say no. Uh, the same, should a Muslim uh, web designer be forced to create a, a, a custom website that depicts uh, Muhammad as someone who is not a prophet, someone who is antithetical to the teachings of the Quran? If that religious customer requested that, to that, that web designer, the government, under uh, the theory being propagated by the Washington State Attorney General, would say, yes, you have to do that. And if you don't do that, we will run you not only out of your business, but out of your life. So this kind of government coercion, the likes of which we have never seen in this country, should concern any American that cares about freedom. Gary Kupik, uh, she is with Alliance Defending Freedom, who is who is uh, representing uh, Baronel Stutzman, um, the grandmother florist uh, who, be, who we've been uh, discussing here uh, the last few minutes. And Carrie, uh, where does this case go from here? So it really depends on what the decision is. And we are hopeful that the Washington State Supreme Court will uh, render a decision that affirms Baronel's freedom under the First Amendment, under the Constitution, to continue to uh, create expression and to speak. Uh, but if they don't, uh, we will be appealing to the United States Supreme Court. Understood. Uh, Carrie Kupek, uh, where can people go uh, to find more information on this and other cases that Alliance Defending Freedom is uh, working on right now? They can go to adflegal.org. adflegal.org. Carrie Kupek is with uh, ADF. Uh, thank you so much, Carrie, for joining the Steve Day Show. I, I appreciate it. Well, we appreciate your support. Thanks very much. Thank you. Todd, um, this is, I mean, it feels like we're just going to have to have these re, these interviews and these updates on loop. I mean, I, I know um, people are, are still kind of high about what happened a week ago tonight, um, but the, the, the fact of the matter is, this stuff is not going away anytime soon. And, I mean, we've been talking about Baronel's story now for years, literally years. This has been going on, and this is just not, it just, it's, we just have to get over the fact that this is, our reality right now, not get over it in the fact of, oh, oh, there's nothing we can do, but we need to embrace this reality for what it is. I agree. Well, the courts are the not only the fail-safe for progressivism, they are fundamentally the reason why uh, Barack Obama and the, the think tank 
on the left has been fine losing state houses across the country because they still get what they want. The only way that doesn't happen is, it, is well, hopefully this court decision does go the way of truth and justice. If it does not, you need to go the way of Iowa, and you need to throw the judges out. Aaron, do you remember the year off the top of your head? I do. When it I, was uh, 2010. Okay, 2010, when after the uh, gay marriage decision, uh, three judges were on the ballot, and we threw them out. So uh, whether your judges come up that way or whether you have an impeachment process, it must be done. It is a tool like any other tool afforded you in constitutional government. Yeah. Don't don't sit there and let it go to waste in the face of tyranny. Yeah. And um, I'm going to repeat this until it becomes trite, and I'm sure maybe Steve will as well. We're not a nation of laws. We're a nation of political wills. And at some point, our will is going to be tested to the point where we might have to say no to something. Just a big fat no. We'll be back to, to wrap hour two next. You're listening to Steve Dace. It's not about the next election. It's about the next generation. Steve Dace. Well, 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 well. The guy who I want to be when I grow up, Ben Shapiro, is at it again. Heck, I'm grown up and I want to be him too. Uh, he, um, he was invited by the Young America's Foundation to speak at uh, DePaul University on the topic of, wait for it, free speech. This is audio. It's a little bit difficult to hear, but this is audio of him conversing with public safety from DePaul University. Listen to this. Did inform you that I was coming as a speaker, as a as a person sitting in the audience, as well as as a member of uh, Christina Hoff Summers' team. So. Uh, I'm not sure what other standards are necessary. I'm also wondering exactly why it's so necessary to keep me personally out. We're just following protocol, sir. Uh, well, why is your protocol to keep me specifically out? What country protocol? Soviet Union or United States? Do you want to step over here and decide? Well, I'm, I'm happy to do it right here if, you, if you'd like. I mean, it doesn't have to step private. The bottom line is it's private property, okay? That it wasn't pro proper procedures weren't followed and you're not going to be allowed. So am I to understand that if I take three steps forward, you will attempt to have me arrested? If you create a problem and you will not, you know, leave the campus, yes. Okay, so just to be just to be clear, if I attempt to enter that hall right there and sit down just to listen to somebody speak, or if I attempt to ask a question so, or to engage in free speech, you will have me arrested. Thank you at this point, yes, sir. Okay, then I'm glad that we've uh, clarified that situation. I'm also glad that uh, in a city, I mean, clearly you have great security. I'm glad in a city that has uh, some 4,000 shootings to this date, you have 30 members of security just for a 59165 Jewish guy. Oh, Ben Shapiro, I need a cigarette after that or something like that. Um, this is what happened, uh, as has happened before when Ben Shapiro and other people um, who um, tell the uh, snowflakes or the bullies, as you put them, Todd, on uh, college campuses, uh, when, when they find out that he's coming or has been invited to speak, they absolutely try to stonewall him. Same thing happened to Paul's administration. Absolutely tried to put this uh, the, the kibosh on this uh, Young America's Foundation event tonight with Christina Hoff uh, Summers. 
um, and Ben Shapiro talking about free speech on college campuses. Wouldn't even let Ben Shapiro go into the entrance hall. This is, um, I, you said something, I think, a month ago uh, to me, uh, Todd, when I referred to people on college campuses, the students, the, the millennials, people of my generations, when I, I referred to them as snowflakes, and you said, no, <laughs> no, they're, they're bullies. Let's call them for what they are. This is another example of that. Indeed, they are something else. Let's put this into context. He was not allowed to come as an official speaker, so what he decides to do is just come to a college campus where the free exchange of ideas is gone and be one of many. Mm -hmm. One of several people. Maybe speak on the quad. Not allowed to do so. But if you are a florist or a baker, you must be compelled to endorse gay marriage through the practices of your business. That you must do, but this, you're going to the clink. Ridiculous. Makes sense. Our theory is next. You're listening to Steve Dace. is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker, that is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. Hour number three of the Steve Day Show is underway on a Tuesday night. Steve, as I've uh, mentioned a few times already, he is out, but he'll be back in tomorrow. I'm Aaron McIntyre, his producer, along for the ride uh, by the venerable Todd Erzin. I've always wanted to be venerable. Venerable. I don't even know what that means. Uh, But I think it's good. Or at least based on your reaction, I think it was good. Uh, if you want to uh, interact with us uh, during the show, you can. Uh, you can follow Todd at Dace Online. You can follow me at Dace Producer, D-E-A-C-E. If you want to reach Steve even when he's gone, you can email him, steve at stevedace.com. You can uh, find him on Twitter at Steve Dace Show, or find his Facebook page uh, by searching Facebook for Steve Dace. It's time for three questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? Question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. And it is that time of the evening when I can ask uh, really any questions that I want to. Snotty or the better, tawdry, vapid, vapid, the better. And as always, uh, if you would like to have a question considered for inclusion in this segment, you can email them to me, Aaron at SteveDace.com. And you may be emailing me right now asking, Aaron, how the heck are you going to do three questions with just two people? And this is what we're going to do. I have a lot of questions that uh, you have emailed me that we need to uh, get caught up on here this evening. So I'm just going to get through as many of them as I possibly can. 
uh, with just Todd and I. So, Todd, um, be sure to answer these questions in more than one or two words. Yes. And um, we'll just we'll try to do the best that we absolutely can. This, this segment will be harder without Steve, but we will try. Without him, there's one thing I know we can do well for sure. It is to be vapid or vapid at length. Amen. So let's do it. Amen. Uh, in that spirit, uh, Charles Schaller asks the first question, why is it sometimes difficult to put the podcast up promptly? Well, Charles, that's kind of a rude question. <laughs> and um, if you must know... <laughs> if you must know, if it's not user error on uh, the part of the podcast uh, or the podcastee or podcast, yeah, podcastee, the person downloading the podcast, which it usually never is unless we're making technical changes, it's my fault. Question two also comes from uh, Charles Schaller. You guys seem to be current on Marvel and superhero movies. Love the way Steve weaves quotes from Star Wars, etc. into his dialogue. But I don't recall y'all mentioning Game of Thrones or quoting any of its characters. Uh, he says uh, Tyrion Lannister is quite a philosopher. Not for kids, of course, but do you just dismiss it as too pornographic? It's certainly well written. Well, I believe we have used Winter is Coming on multiple occasions. Yeah, but that's kind of a meme, isn't it? I don't even know what the... the... So what? It, it's it been used so much now? Mm-hmm. It's... It's transcended its ability to be used. Is this what just I happened? I, I think so, but I, I'm I'm not dismissing your point. But go ahead, sorry. No, no. I've, I hey, I'm just wondering what the rules are of memeism. So I, I'm I'm willing to be educated. Well, I, I like I understand certain memes. Um, well, I just started watching Doctor Who like a couple of nights ago, but I understood like memes from that uh, before, just based on how um, culturally pervasive, not pervasive, but uh, just how. Uh, how much the culture mm -hmm. loves that show. So I understood some of those memes, and I kind of understand Winter is Coming a little bit, but I don't understand the context. So I guess that's well, what I'm Now, I think you started Game of Thrones, but then stopped? Is no, I started Orange is the New Black. I started like uh, two seconds in, and there was upper female nudity, and I'm like, yeah, I know. But, but you didn't uh, watch I've, Game I've of... I've never watched And neither, an nor has Steve... I've, I think, I've watched all except the most recent season. Really? Uh, yeah, and it's it's outstanding. I mean, it's it's done on a level uh, on par with uh, Lord of the Rings. Now, of course, there is uh, the nudity, and I'm just you know, as a Christian, you need to figure that out uh, for yourself. But the, the writing is outstanding, uh, and it the writing is outstanding in a way that makes folks of our worldview ponder the world we live in now which is uh, no small feat and this is on par with you know it, here it does it at fantasy science fiction it was done with the uh, Battlestar Galactica Lost did these things um, you've already mentioned Star Wars so uh, I, I think the main reason is is because our boss is named Steve Dace and he hasn't seen it that's right. probably the best answer yeah that's probably a good answer um, I'm I'm in the thoroughly. Uh, it's uh, from what I've heard and what I've read about it. It's just, it's too pornographic. Um, it looks. I mean, it looks like it could be a, a great show. I mean, it looks like it could be Lord of the Rings esque. But I'm just not. I'm just not interested. I, I will say this. You know, there's a. The main character in the first season, and then and the nudity involved, with. Her, it, it's some of it. I, I think you know these are fanboys, mm -hmm. and there are a lot of them aren't watching uh, it uh, for any deeper re reason than probably to be uh, titillated. 
Uh, but there is, it was done in a way in the, with the particular character in the first season that it, it, it added to the depth of the storytelling. But now again, I own that. I'm not speaking for Steve. I'm not speaking for Aaron. Mm-hmm. He's right here. Um, it didn't have to be done. I'm just saying the fact that it was done actually did add to the depth of the storytelling because of the context it was in. Understood. Uh, next question, David Doucette asks, is swearing ever an offense and therefore a sin? ruining a Christian's witness for Jesus Christ. I'm going to say, um, yes, it, it, uh, it can be, but it depends on how you define swearing, because that, that can be um, defined a million different ways. Um, I think the best rule of thumb is to not take the Lord's name in vain. Um, that's, I think that's the best rule of thumb. So, I mean, are we all, uh, innocent of that, uh, innocent in doing that? Of course not. I, at least I, I don't think I, I'm not either. I don't know why it's so easy for us to say, <clears throat> you know, uh, gee, uh, darn it or whatever, whatever derivation you have, but not Allah or Buddha, darn it, or anything like that. It's definitely a slap in the face uh, to the Lord, I would say. And that's generally the rule of thumb that I would go with. Now, other more tawdry um, curse words that don't um, directly relate to um, God or taking his name in vain, uh, I would say that's, I mean, that's that's something you have to answer yourself. Are you using it so much to where you're no different than the world that you're not set apart? Or are you using it uh, in a way that's that's not honoring to someone or something that honor should be uh, bestowed to? I think that's something you have to answer for yourself. But I believe generally that some curse words can be used for effect in the right circumstances. What do you think, Todd? Well, this is partially related to what we just got done talking about. I think context is important here. And Steve has talked before about the things as Christians we must reject and the things we can receive. Mm -hmm. I happen to be around these days in a different context. Some people who it's just every other word is a curse word. And it's just it's debasing to them if they could just look at themselves and how ridiculous they sound and look. But if we are to minister within that culture, you know, we can't go in there looking and just sounding like Dudley Do-Right. Christians come in all shapes and sizes. There's a lot of tatted up people who did a lot of bad things in their life. They've given their lives over to the Lord. But if a cuss word is coming out of their mouth every once in a while because it helps them communicate with the culture and they know mm-hmm. better than I do, um, all glory be to God. I think that's right. Uh, next question. Uh, Keel asks, if each uh, created person's rights are God-given, does each person have the created right to not be imprisoned indefinitely without a trial, regardless of citizenship, and why? Well, that's a really good question. It is. You want to take this, or you want me to whack at Just, uh, well, I'm happy to take it. Just read the last part. The, the la- so, uh, if each created person's right. Right are, uh, rights are God-given, does each person have the created right to not be imprisoned indefinitely without trial, regardless of citizen, uh, citizenship, and why? And we've got one minute. Well, we're... I'm sorry. Cit- <laughs> no, cit- citizenship... Is, is the key, one of the key parts there. If, uh, if you aren't a citizen, then it's a matter of why are you being held in the first place. I think you're probably referring to Guantanamo and uh, this being an act of war. And the rules of war are different uh, than they are um, during peacetime. So you, you've asked a loaded question, mm-hmm. uh, but I, if you're, if you're, this is a roundabout way of asking, is Guantanamo legit? The answer is yes. 
Well, it depends on if you violated another person's human um, or God-given rights. Uh, then you have, in a way, you've forfeited yours, and the government, whatever government that is, has is uh, bestowed by God with the power, as Paul says, um, to bring justice upon the evildoer. So that's how I would answer that. Quickly, Aaron McIntyre has a question for Todd. How does it feel that Iowa beat Michigan, but Wisconsin could not? Todd, your reaction? Oh, we're out of time. I'm sorry. Ah, uh, you earned that. <laughs> You're listening to Steve Dace. From the front lines of the battle for liberty, the Steve Day Show. And welcome back to the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. As I'm sure many of you know, November is National Adoption Month. And joining us to talk about that is Paul Batura. He is the Vice President of Communications for Focus on the Family, of course, one of the foremost organizations, uh, pro-family and pro-faith organizations in the United States. He's written a fascinating new book, called Chosen for Greatness, How Adoption Changes the World. And Paul, it's great to have you on the Steve Day Show. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm doing really well, Aaron. Thank you for the invitation. It's uh, really good to be with you. Well, thanks for uh, coming on. And Paul, before we get to the book, and there are several stories you've outlined in this book, uh, stories that are just astounding of of people who maybe most of our audience wouldn't expect uh, would have been adopted but are. But before we get into the book, um, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Well, thank you uh, again. Uh, You know, I'm uh, really delighted to be a focus on the family for almost the last 20 years. Um, I grew up in New York. Uh, was born on the south shore of Long Island, uh, wound up working for the newspaper I delivered as a young boy, which is always is a thrill, and also loved radio and wound up working for the radio station, WOR, that I listened to as a kid. And uh, when I made my way out here to Colorado Springs, I really had a, a dream to help Dr. Dobson and, and write for him, which I got a chance to do and worked uh, alongside him for 10 years as a research assistant. And then... Um, uh, morphed into the position that I'm in now, overseeing our uh, public relations and our media uh, communications. So it's a lot of fun, and along the way, I've gotten to uh, had the opportunity to write some books and tell some stories. And uh, kind of what brings me uh, to the mic tonight is to talk to you about this uh, new adoption book. That's very interesting. And you mentioned this this adoption book. What specifically made you interested in writing about adoption? Well, yeah, it's a very uh, personal topic uh, to my wife and I. Julie and I have been married uh, 15 years, and we've had the privilege of adopting three boys. They're now 11, 6, and 4. And to get to see adoption on such a intimate level and to it really from both sides because we're obviously we're very uh, grateful to be adoptive couples, uh, an adoptive couple, but we also have had the privilege of seeing it from the adoptive mothers or the uh, birth mothers side. Uh, two of the three of our adoptions are open, and so we have an ongoing relationship with uh, our son's birth mothers, which are really great. Um, they, they bring challenge, they bring uh, a wonderful uh, opportunity. Of ministry, but 
it's it's also been very humbling because we get to see uh, that any time a gift is given, uh, you know, the giver is sacrificing something. And, you know, we sat in a church in Edmond, Oklahoma, for that first adoption, and we had what was called an entrustment ceremony in which um, Riley's birth mom relinquished him and entrusted him to us. And it was a powerful uh, moment, and it was really... Uh, something that will stick with us the rest of our lives. Um, it, it really left me, you know, again, humbled with the responsibilities placed upon us, but really uh, grateful uh, to be given that opportunity to be a dad, uh, something that I wasn't sure was going to happen because my wife and I had struggled with infertility. And here, you know, God answered our prayers in an amazing way. And so, I, you know, we're trying to tell these stories to help remind adopted children that, um, you know, they're not second-class citizens. You know, when it comes to God's sovereignty, there's no plan B. He has a plan for every child, and he has certainly, I think, as these stories indicate, indicate work, worked marvelously in the lives of some very well-known people. Um, you know, that what they succeeded or what they were able to accomplish didn't happen uh, in spite of being adopted. It actually happened because they were adopted. That's uh, that's uh, so powerful and uh, and so interesting that you would uh, that bring up the term second class citizen because I think a lot of people just kind of inherently think uh, when we discuss adoption uh, we don't really think about big celebrity names or success stories whatever that means but as you detail in your book there are a ton of names I think everyone in our audience would recognize that were adopted when they were kids but which story and you tell these stories in your book but which story maybe off the top of your head to you really stood out as uh, the, the most as you were writing this book well yeah there are several um, you know I think of George Washington Carver he you know is a historical figure that we all grew up learning about and I think for the most part we probably learned about his uh, scientific exploits uh, you know, he's a botanist who was able to find over 200 uses of the peanut and 100 uses of the sweet potato. So he was really innovative uh, for a man of his time. But what a lot of us don't really probably remember is that he was uh, born to a slave woman who was actually kidnapped uh, as an infant. And his uh, slave family wound up trying to uh, chase uh, down his captors. Uh, they wound up uh, finding him, but they didn't find his birth mother, who was kidnapped along with him, nor did they find his sister. But the remarkable thing, Aaron, is that they brought George back uh, to their home. And before he was kidnapped, he was known as Carver's George, because the family were the Carvers, and George was his first name. Hmm. But they renamed him George Carver. So they flipped his name, they welcomed him into their home, they really made him one of their own, and gave him... You know, all the privileges, all the rights that a, a, a white child would have had for that era. And he was sickly. He was really weak. And because of that, they, uh, you know, kind of gave him a little bit of a reduced responsibility load. And he was given the freedom to kind of wander the woods and fell in love with nature um, and became infatuated with it. He accepted Christ as he was 10 years of age. Acts 17.28 is one of his favorite verses. In him we live and move and have our being. He kind of pondered that as he walked the woods, and that's really what led to his curiosity of God's creation. Um, But again, it it really would not have happened. You know, he was given an education. He was given all the things that he wouldn't have otherwise been able to accomplish. And 
wound up going to work with Booker T. Washington at Tuskegee Institute, and the, the rest, as they say, is history. That is fascinating. We're talking with uh, Paul Baturi. He is the Vice President of Communications for Focus on the Family. Got over uh, two decades of uh, diverse, really diverse experience in uh, news media, and uh, as you said earlier, he's had the opportunity to uh, write a few books along the way. And uh, his latest book, uh, released just a few days ago, uh, Chosen for Greatness, How Adoption Changes the World, and it's filled with stories of people who may be um, unlikely or maybe you wouldn't think of being um, from a background of adoption. Of course, uh, Paul has uh, shared his story about uh, he, uh, how he and his family have uh, developed thanks to adoption. And Paul, when we come back from break, I, I want to ask you about a few more of the stories that you detail in your book. Uh, people like uh, Steve Jobs and Nancy Reagan even came from, ado- from uh, adoption backgrounds. And I want to get uh, our audience uh, filled in on their stories when we come back with Paul Bator here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Stay tuned. You're listening to Steve Dace. Giants alarm clock, Steve Dace. And back on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network with Paul Batura. He's the vice president for, of uh, communications for Focus on the Family, and he's the author of the new book, Chosen for Greatness, How Adoption Changes the World. Privileged to have him on the show tonight, uh, with November being National Adoption Month. The uh, book he's written, uh, as I said, Chosen for Greatness, uh, details the uh, stories of a number of people, a number of people who you would know um, who have been adopted who are, or who were adopted. And, uh, Paul, I want to go next to the story of Steve Jobs. What's his background? Well, every, we all know that name, of course, and mm-hmm. so many of us have Apple products that we use. What you might not realize is that he was adopted as, a, as an infant, but the adoption uh, almost went in a very different direction. He was uh, uh, selected, uh, or his birth mother selected a family uh, who were ready to adopt him. But when they found out that he was a boy, because they had been matched before birth, they turned it down. And so they were scrambling at the last minute trying to find another family. And they wound up find, finding a couple uh, named Paul and Clara Jobs, who happened to live in Silicon Valley. And they were... Uh, excited with the placement. The birth mom, though, wasn't too pleased because they were not college educated. That was important to her. And they had to assure her that Steve would get a college education. But what I love about this story, Aaron, is the, you know, the placement of him in the family, in the neighborhood uh, at the time. He, here he was, you know, brought, out, brought into a family. His father was a mechanic and had a workshop and wound up moving into lasers a little bit later. But Steve famously said, I didn't really love working with cars, but I loved being with my dad. 
And it really speaks to that important connection that children make with their parents, the influence a good parent has. But he, you know, he grew up in a time when technology was exploding. He had um, just a few blocks away an HP executive who knew the family, who gave Steve uh, access uh, and uh, opportunity to uh, hobnob with executives in that industry. And the, again, the laser background helped a lot. His father was a really infatuated with uh, intricate design and even the design that you couldn't see. And that was a big uh, influence on Steve. And so, you know, to this day, when you open up an Apple computer, if you look on the inside, you know, not what the most people see, it's quite exquisite. And it was really born from that fatherly influence. Uh, you know, Steve later in life uh, was really eager to meet his birth mother and said, I wanted to just thank her for not aborting me. Um, you know, Steve was, I don't think, by any stretch, you know, a pro-life advocate who championed, you know, overturning Roe versus Wade or anything. But right. I, I think when it was personal to him, and it just showed, uh, I thought, God's hand in his life to be placed in the family and the neighborhood at the, uh, you know, the doors were open to him that otherwise wouldn't have been. All right. That is, uh, again, a fascinating story. Um, Nancy Reagan. Uh, that's something that's a name. I, I think I knew about Steve Jobs uh, kind of in the periphery, but Nancy Reagan, I did not realize uh, her, this was part of her story as well. Yeah, and it's not even just part of her story. I think it's part of a larger historical uh, story. And, you know, we know that name. Most of us probably don't know the name Ann Robbins. That was uh, her birth name. Wow. She was born in the midst of uh, a pretty, uh, you know, uh, contentious marriage of her birth parents. They wound up divorcing, actually separated even before she was born. Uh, her mom was a uh, struggling stage actress and wound up uh, sending her to live with her aunt, uh, the mom's sister, down in Bethesda, Maryland. Nancy spent six years there and wound up uh, uh, wound up rejoining her mom when she was about eight. And uh, the remarkable thing is that uh, her mom remarried, married a doctor by the name of Loyal Davis. And the significance of that, Aaron, is that Loyal Davis was a strong conservative who wound up uh, influencing Nancy's worldview. But then when Nancy went to California, she had taken her birth, her uh, adoptive father's new name. So she, he was now, you know, she was now Nancy Davis. And there was another Nancy Davis in California who was on the communist sympathizer list. And so they said, well, if you need to straighten this out. You need to talk to the president of the Screen Actors Guild. Uh, who was Ronald Reagan. Huh. And as I kind of conclude, I said, look, you know, if she had not been adopted, had she not changed her name, she probably wouldn't have had reason to meet Ronald Reagan. And I think most people are convinced that Nancy had such an influence on Ronald Reagan that, you know, without her, he probably wouldn't have run for governor or president. That's the, you know, the, uh, the, the, the reality. And I think it speaks to the, the impact adoption had not only on her life, his life, on the life of the nation. That is extremely fascinating and intriguing. Talking again with uh, Paul Batura. He's author of the book, Chosen for Greatness, How Adoption Changes the World. One more segment with him when we come back. You're listening to Steve Dace.
there, ruling class. Meet your worst nightmare. I'm having these dreams, but I'm scared. Steve Dace. And you are listening to The Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Talking this hour with Paul Batura, and he's the Vice President of Communications for Focus on the Family, and he's the author of a fascinating book, Chosen for Greatness, How Adoption Changes the World. And as we just uh, heard uh, before the break, the story of Nancy Reagan, that... Uh, that uh, title is uh, not overblown. It's not overstating things at all. One more story, Paul, before we uh, let And then I've got a question for you uh, before we let you go. Uh, how about uh, Faith Hill and Tim McGraw? Uh, that's a name I'm sure a lot of people know. Country music is big uh, across the country. Uh, what's their story? Yeah, well, right. Both of them, of course, they're married now. They've been married 20 years. Uh, both of them were adopted, um, one more uh, conventionally than the other. Faith was adopted as an infant by Ted and Edna Perry. Uh, what I love about her story is that her mom and uh, her dad had two biological children. They were, you know, happy family, but her mom really felt this desire for a larger family. And when they couldn't conceive naturally, uh, she convinced her husband, who was not overly convinced that they needed to expand their family any further. But she wound up uh, uh, pursuing adoption. They were matched pretty quickly, and uh, they welcomed her. She was uh, born Audrey uh, Perry was her name. And uh, she, I think, like a lot of kids, you know, had a lot of enthusiasm, had a lot of talents that their parents were trying to figure out what it was that her, their kids were good at. Um, she immediately, you know, kind of took to music. Her parents noticed that. She used to walk around the, the house with a hairbrush and singing into it. And when she told them that she wanted to go to an Elvis Presley concert, they were really um, uh, reluctant to do it. But they saw how much she loved it, and they thought, well, okay, there would be minimal harm, and they went with her. She's only seven years old, but she said it was at that concert that she you know, realized, this is what I want to do. And as she grew older, you know, they had rebellious streaks. Her parents were pretty tough and kept her on the rails. And uh, when she actually made it, to Nashville to try and make it in Nashville. She called home ready to quit. And her mom said, look, this is what you've been wanting to do your whole life. Hang up the phone and get to work. And, you know, it just, again, the, the strong parent, the influential parent, uh, set faith in a very uh, significant uh, direction that led to her, set her up for great success. All right. Well, uh, Paul, uh, it's been great having you on the show, but uh, before we let you go, uh, one more question. For, for parents out there um, who think that maybe adoption is right for them, is, is maybe a direction that they want to go, uh, with your experience uh, having adopted uh, kids as well with your wife, what would be your first words of advice for those parents? Mm. Well, I'd say continue praying about it. Um, I think the Lord will make it's pretty clear, or at least he'll put you in the right direction where things can happen. I, you know, you have to declare, I think, what you're feeling led to do. And there's so many different forms of adoption. So I would, you know, again, you really need to, I think, decide, do you want, are you looking to have an infant placement? Are you looking rather for an older child? Um, you know, would you be open to fostering to adopt? Uh, there's really uh, a lot of different ways to go about it. I think every family needs to um, make a decision for themselves. There's, of course, domestic adoption. There's international adoption. 
Um, they're all equally great, uh, certainly if the Lord's in the middle of it. But I would really strongly encourage them to pray and not be fearful. There's a lot of uncertainty surrounding it, but it is a, uh, a wonderful adventure that is probably going to be the most rewarding thing that you ever do in your life. Paul Batura, author of Chosen for Greatness, How Adoption Changes the World. Of course, uh, November is National Adoption Month. And Paul, it's been great having you on the show tonight. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Aaron. It's been fun talking about the topic. Well, thank you. Well, Todd, uh, you heard that uh, interview with uh, Paul Batur. What what uh, takeaways uh, do you have from listening to this conversation? I've, I've got one, but I, I want to let you chime in here. Well, my uh, very own uh, somebody in my family. I, I was just about to say it, and then I got to thinking, I don't know how much I'm supposed to divulge to millions of people. Anyway, someone in my family is uh, pondering very seriously the adoption process. Uh, and I am humbled uh, by it from afar. It is a, a, a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing to see uh, a family uh, wrestle with uh, the sense of uh, love and duty and obligation of take this road less traveled right. uh, to adoption. He's right at the end. Um, pray. Uh, we have become a culture as Christians that when we say that, it sounds formulaic. Mm-hmm. That is a great tragedy. Uh, the furthest thing, the prayer should be the furthest thing from being uh, formulaic. It's okay. I mean, there, there's clearly the, the Our Father, uh, a, a rote prayer was given us to by the Lord Himself. So I, I, we, we certainly can pray in that sense. But the, to, to know the words deeply, to reflect on them and meditate, uh, meditate on them deeply. To, to put uh, to offer this up to the Lord to guide you. He's absolutely right. If you do that earnestly, if you put all of your heart and soul into that prayer, is there, is there a cause more worthy of doing so than to give a child new life? It's very well said. And um, I, too, have had someone in my family uh, who is, who's considered this and has gone down uh, pretty far the road to adoption. And it uh, turned out that it wasn't really in, in the plans or it wasn't really meant to be during that time. And uh, it, it, I'll, I'll tell you why when we come back. I'll, I'll tell you why we spent so much of this third hour uh, talking about these stories. <clears throat> and it's very... I think it's very important uh, that we do and that we have these conversations about uh, adoption. And uh, and I'll, I'll tell you why uh, when we come back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network, uh, wrapping up a, a Tuesday evening where uh, Steve, of course, is gone and uh, Todd and I fill in for him. We'll have more on the other side. Uh, be sure to stay tuned. Listening to Steve Dace. The Power of Principles, Steve Dace.
Well, we have come to the end, my friend, of the Steve Day Show on a Tuesday evening. And before we went to break, I, um, I teased the fact that I thought... Uh, I teased what I was going to say about why we spent a good portion of this hour talking about adoption and, and stories of adoption. And it's because I believe firmly that as much as anything in the pro-life movement, adoption has to be foremost and forefront in any of these discussions. We cannot give our opponents the pro-choice movement, whatever you have, we cannot give them any excuse that their side is more convenient or it's more righteous or anything. It's too hard to uh, put someone up, a child up for adoption. And so I think, it, I think these types of conversations and uh, encouragement for couples to adopt, I think those have to be forefront in conversations and shaping policy even, if that's uh, possible in the near future when it comes to um, the pro-life movement. So that was my takeaway from this uh, conversation. And this is the time of the show when we uh, ask each other what we've learned, and it's just a two-man affair this evening. Uh, but Todd, uh, hour one, we, uh, we talked with Jason Jones about uh, why this uh, the, the conservative movement, what's left of it, why even though what happened last Tuesday yeah, may be a win or at least a stay of execution, but we need to treat it like it's a loss. We talked about that in hour one. We had talked about the war on cops in hour two with Jeffrey Rorda. Uh, what did you learn here this evening? I, I don't... Treating it like a loss is not the route I would go. And, and, and this is a you know, a frame of reference, what's most useful. Mm-hmm. I, I, th- I simply think we need to treat what is true is true and what is false is false. All right? No idols. If the, I, I have... The honeymoon is is over in many respects, except for me hammering the media, which is my, my perpetual uh, way of doing things. But I am, you know, I am just as weary of Donald Trump as I was before he won the election. I will remain so. If he does well, if he does something that I approve of, I will applaud him for it. If he doesn't, I won't. I think that is the tack to take, not only in the case of Donald Trump, but increasingly, God knows it's too much to ask of the left, but for those of us on the right, can't we just start there? No, that, that let's would not require make us up, being adults. Yes, let's not make up silly nursery rhymes about Donald Trump to make us sleep well at night. Let's be honest. <laughs> well said. Um, I learned tonight that uh, doing the three questions segment with two people is indeed possible. So there's that. We'll be back tomorrow night uh, at full strength and with Steve Dace. Until then, Micah 6-8. Listening to Steve Dace.